Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's good to remember the dark and it's good to remember the light. Happy birthday, my brother. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you are a gift to us all, and I know that you have the best gift in your life now, which is your son, and I hope you enjoy him as much as possible. Happy Thanks, birthday, Chris. brother. Thank you. All right, I am Chris Cuomo, and welcome to Primetime. We all see the problems. Are the Democrats now at a tipping point? Is it time to blow up the ability of the minority in the Senate to filibuster? Parliamentary procedures, it's not just one rule, this basket of what enables a minority to forestall votes. They've been around for a long time, almost as long as the Senate. But for a long time, the Senate acted very differently than today. It acted as a group of independent people who often put progress before party. Filibusters were rare until the ugliness of racist resolve that led us up to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And thereafter, they were again rare, sometimes weaponized, but often foregone in the interest of progress. Then came the last 20 years, during which we have seen the Senate corrode as a culture. It has become more partisan and more about opposition than progress. The Senate is now subject to the same mob mentality as the House. So maybe the time has come to remove the minority protections. The short-term upside is obvious for the Democrats. They can't get enough things done to make a big push for the midterms if it stays in place. For example, the infrastructure package. The president is negotiating, apparently in good faith. We've heard nothing different from Republicans. And he has made concessions. He's brought the price tag on the package down from more than $2 trillion to $1 trillion, trillion, which is close to what Republicans want, but there's still no deal. Republicans are expected to make another counteroffer, but the question is, why should we think they're doing anything but playing the game? Here are the points of consideration. One, why would they do infrastructure when zero Republicans voted for Biden's relief bill despite a -a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic? You know what they did then. They didn't vote for it. Then it passed anyway, And they went home and pretended to their constituents that they provided the relief that was benefiting them. Couldn't they just do that again? Two, if they were going to be cooperative on anything, it should be the January 6th commission. After all, it was a plot to attack them. But they just killed the plan for a bipartisan commission. And we know why. To protect the poison politics that they're playing with. And three, the best reason to get rid of the minority protection came from the mouth of the minority leader. 100% of my focus is on stopping this new administration. That's what he is about. That is a different Senate leader for a different time. You didn't used to hear that from the men involved in leadership. Now you have men and women in the Senate, but still male leaders. Times have changed. The Senate has changed. 
There is no will to compromise, only will to fuel the demise of the Democrats. Literally, the right is more interested in seeding revolt and notions of a coup than doing what it was meant to do. But if you change this filibuster, there may be no going back. And Democrats have to consider what that will mean for them in the short and long term. But before they can even consider whether they should, they need to know whether they could remove the rules. Blowing it up would require the blessing of all 50 Senate Democrats. We know of at least two who are not on board, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. CNN just caught up with Manchin, a pivotal swing vote, and he says he's not ready to go there. Bipartisanship is still the way. Listen to his explanation. These take time. You just can't. I know everyone's in a hurry right now. If anyone understands the process, it's President Joe Biden. We've got to work together. You know, you can only do so much by yourself. And that's what we're not designed to work that way. Mm -hmm. The House is. The Senate was never designed that way. We're going to make the Senate work the way it was intended to work. We're, I'm, I'm totally committed to that. So you can say you'll never reduce a 60 vote threshold. Basically, we're going to make the place work. So you're not taking reducing the 60 vote threshold off the table. We're going to make the place work. I don't know what else I can tell you. Mm-hmm. And you can't make it worse and work unless the minority has input. Mm-hmm. You can't disregard a person that's not in the majority. So the question becomes, why is Manchin so resistant? It sounds idealistic, but is it realistic? Is the calculus for him to save the Senate or to save his own seat? The better minds to this question, Paul Begala and David Gregory. Good to see you both. Paul, do you think the Democrats pull the trigger and try to get uh, rid of these parliamentary procedures that we call a filibuster? Yeah, I think you have to let the string play out. I mean, I don't think that the Republican leader, Mr. McConnell, is operating in good faith. You pointed out he said 100 percent of his focus is trying to stop the Biden administration, not trying to help the 7,000 families who've lost someone to COVID in his Commonwealth, not to help the, the 1,000 people uh, who died last year in his Commonwealth of opioids, not, not to fix the Brent Spence Bridge, which is the second busiest bridge, bridge in America, second only to the George Washington Bridge up in your part of the world, connects Ohio and Kentucky. It is, the American Society of Civil Engineers say, functionally obsolete. So that's McConnell. So I have no faith in him, but I'm not Joe Manchin. I've known Joe Manchin a long time. He honestly, earnestly believes in bipartisanship. He is beloved in West Virginia. I don't think he's worried about losing. I don't think he can lose. And he's certainly not going to be replaced by a more liberal Democrat if he does lose. I think it's nuts to bother Joe Manchin from the left the way some have advocated. But do you think but they're going I, to I do this Manchin's or not? Going to see, Manchin's going to see that this is not on the level. He's going to see that McConnell is trying to play. He him. hasn't seen and that already. He, what else does he need to see? No, because it takes that. You have to actually run. The, you have to actually run the string out. You have to give him every chance. If they don't compromise, I think the January 6th commission vote really hurt McConnell in, in the eyes of Senator Manchin and others. As you pointed out, their own chamber was taken over by rioters. They were, they were chanting, hang Mike Pence, who was then our vice president and the presiding officer of the Senate. So I, I think that McConnell is showing that he's not on the level, that this is a fraud. And I, I think they're going to get to it, but they're not there yet. I was really struck in Manu's interview that Senator Manchin didn't say, never, never, never. He said, I want to make the Senate work. And he means that. That's what he wants. And the Senate cannot work with Mitch McConnell using a filibuster every day. How big in their mind, David, should the cost of doing this be? 
Well, I think it's big in the minds of somebody like Manchin. I think there's other Democrats, too, including the president of the United States, who doesn't think um, quickly about dispensing with the filibuster because they understand the potential cost, because it will be used against uh, Democrats down the road. And Joe Biden's an institutionalist. He believes in the Senate. He's, he believes a lot of the things that, that Manchin is, uh, is saying. But Biden's being pushed a lot from the left here. And so we have to understand that this is power politics of our current day, not Paul Begala's day working for Bill Clinton. The power politics today is the left is fed up with the fact that the right plays power politics and the left does not. And the left says it's time to start playing that way, except not everybody's got the memo. And I think that is so I agree with Paul that it's got to it's got to play out a little bit. And this is where Biden, you know, Biden wants to play big in some areas. He wants to be FDR like but not in all areas. And this is where he's being dragged a bit. And the question of the filibuster is one of those areas. He's got a lot of big bets on the table. He's got to decide which one he wants to go all in on. So you also have TikTok, TikTok going on. The midterms are closer than people suspect. Um, the Democratic Party as a coalition of left thinkers is not that easy to keep together. And they do not have the advantage of groupthink that you have on the right. We saw a Big display of that today in the form of the former vice president, Mike Pence. Listen to him discuss January 6th. January 6th was a dark day in the history of the United States Capitol. But thanks to the swift action of the Capitol Police and federal law enforcement, violence was quelled. The Capitol was secured. President Trump and I have spoken many times since we left office. And I don't know if we'll ever see eye to eye on that day. But I will always be proud of what we accomplished for the American people over the last four years. And I will not allow Democrats or their allies in the media to use one tragic day to discredit the aspirations of millions of Americans. Now, I play this, Paul, not just to show you how desperate Pence is to stay close to the base, but you will never hear anything like that from somebody in your party, where they sent a mob to find and hang this guy, and his response is, hey, I don't think you and I are going to see eye to eye about that day that, you know, you, you sent those people to come and get me. Um, that is what the right has as an advantage right now. And what is the counter for the left? How do you match that kind of adherence to the code, let's call it. Well, you can't, thank God, in my party. You know, uh, uh, William Cohen said this recently, actually on CNN. He was, of course, a Republican congressman who broke with Nixon over Watergate. He was a Republican senator from Maine and a Republican in the Clinton administration right. as defense secretary. Okay, he said, Republicans used to be about ideology, now they're about idolatry. That this is like worshiping the golden calf in Exodus. Um, I think he's right. There's nothing like that in the Democratic Party. You actually have to hold people together in communities of interest with ideas, trying to make people's lives better. Uh, but Pence, now the lawyer in me, Chris, I'm more interested, you're a better lawyer than I am. Mike Pence talked about conversations after he left office with Trump. Those are not covered by executive privilege. We need that man under oath. We need to have a 1-6 commission, and we need him under oath telling us 
What happened? Was his life really in danger? What did the president know, and when did he know it? This is, I thought this speech was actually a, a treasure trove for future investigators. I don't know that there's any appetite, especially from President Biden, uh, to have more of those kinds of investigations. But if you were to do that, even if you were to subpoena, you would get familiar very quickly with three words. Do not recall. Uh, David, so in terms of <laughs> what this means for the state of play going forward, if it's not about getting Manchin to understand that the Voting Rights Act is a legacy play, and if he's not on board with this, uh, you're going to lose cycles of elections of unfairness, what are the other options? Well, I think that Biden and his team have to make some calculations here because, you know, the truth is that the right, when they come to their senses, the reason they don't want to talk about January 6th and the reason why, you know, Pence wants to make a feint toward, well, we don't really see eye to eye about January 6th, is they would much rather, and it's a much smarter political play, I think Paul would agree, to just run against the left, run against the excesses of the cultural and the political left rather than talk about Trumpism. And so here, Biden is faced with, he's already spent a lot of money, he wants to do a big infrastructure deal. I think there's some common cause there, actually, if they can do something, both sides see some gain in that. The filibuster question and around voting rights, that's the big bet. And, and, you know, any president only has so much political capital. And Biden understands, as much as he may believe in the institution of the Senate, Republicans are starting to coalesce around the idea of the midterms in 2024, that they want to run against the left, not even Biden so much, but are, are against the left. And the more he spends, the more he taxes, the more he feeds into that, he's going to have to make a decision about what he wants to go for, because I don't think he has much of a partnership there. Biden's in a tough spot because he will not get credit for the vaccine um, with anybody on the right. They're going to say, no, 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 this was Operation Warp Speed. This was Trump. This wasn't you. You just carried it forward. Um, he's going to have to show big ticket items to show that he was going to make big change. And time is ticking and he can't get it done in the state of play as it is right now. Bagala, Gregory, great to have you both. Thank you. Always a plus. Thanks. America's pandemic fight is going global. We're sharing vaccines with the rest of the world. Now, should we be doing that? On one level, of course, if you have them to spare, do we? Don't we have a lot of arms here that we still have to get shots in if we wanna reach herd immunity, if there is such a thing? And have we learned anything this time? Are we better set up to deal with the next one? Back with us, as promised, a lot of you said, oh, there's a lot more I wanted to hear discussed. And now you will. The essential COVID warrior, the director of the NIH, is back. Two big COVID announcements from the White House. But I think that we're going to focus on what isn't in the talking points, okay? Because this is part of the game that I want you to be aware of as well. The headlines were all about how to juice vaccine numbers. Free beer! Child care, you know, to help people get in there and get their vaccines, help with the president's goal of 70 percent with at least one shot by the 4th of July. The problem is that number is looking harder and harder to hit because there's less reason for people to get vaccinated because things are opening up anyway. The national vaccine rate is dropping. Our pace is now under a million a day. It hasn't been that low since January. Today's big announcement was about sharing with the rest of the world, 80 million doses by the end of June. However, there's an asterisk. These are AstraZeneca shots. They're not being used in this country. The problem is that the president said this a month ago. 
We've already committed to work to send 60 million doses of AstraZeneca vaccine to other countries starting this month. It's a good goal. In that month, we've sent a grand total of 4 million to Mexico and Canada, while the White House tried to figure out what to do with the rest. Uh, There are more than 100,000 people that died in India alone. The need is very great. Now, we had on Dr. Francis Collins last night to talk about where do we think it came from? How curious are you about the lab? Is there resistance to the lab theory? So that's how it started. Now let's talk about how we end it. So back again is Dr. Francis Collins, director of the National Institutes of Health. Thank you for making yourself available two nights in a row. Glad to. So the dropping rate, Doc, um, people don't need to get the vaccine. The masks are coming off. Things are opening up. Do you really believe we can get to 70 percent by July 4th? And is that number scientifically relevant? Um, I think we can make it, but it's going to take a push. Uh, And that's why the president announced this sort of national month of action to try to activate that push and making it ever easier. Pharmacies staying open all night on Friday, child care for people who need somebody to watch their kids while they get their shot, uh, all kinds of efforts in barber shops and beauty salons uh, to make those sites where you can get vaccinated. Any kind of effort to try to get the wait and see, I'm not quite ready yet, I don't have time, uh, folks, to try to take this seriously because there's still plenty of them out there. So we can make this work, but it's gonna take a huge push, which is what we need to do right now. And will we get to that remarkable 70%? Um, I think we're probably going to get really close and I'm hoping we will get there. Is that a magic number, Chris? Does that say, okay, now we're fine? No, the higher we go, the better we're going to be at driving this virus away. And of course, it's not even across the country. There are 12 states that are already at 70%. I worry about the ones that are way below that. And they are sitting ducks for the next outbreak of COVID-19, which shouldn't have to happen now. So come on, folks, let's get engaged. We're Americans. We know how to do this. Uh, Kaiser Family Foundation poll says uh, beer is good, cash is better, but FDA approval is best. It would garner three times the impact (laughs) of free beer. Uh, Instead of a PBR, why isn't the three letters uh, that are activated FDA? Why not get them to push the approval process here and give people confidence and give states the confidence to mandate it if they want to, at least for schools? Well, FDA is looking at that uh, application from Pfizer. They've had that now for, I think, three weeks. And Moderna just sent in theirs uh, in the last day or two. But it is a complicated process. I am sure those folks at FDA are working night and day to go through all of that, but they have to be absolutely sure about things like the manufacturing process. It's pretty thousands of pages long kind of application to dig through. Yeah, I hear you. I actually, though, Chris, I'm not sure that many people are using that as the reason not to get injected right now. Heck, we've got now nine months experience with these uh, Moderna and Pfizer vaccines since the beginning of those phase three trials, we already have a pretty good window here to see if they're safe and effective. And every time you look, it looks really good. So if somebody's listening to this, it's sort of in the wait and see phase, maybe this is long enough to wait. And now you can see that this is something that you want. Can I say one other thing, Chris, about this? I think ought to appeal to people who are still holding back. Think about those people who can't actually get immunized because they have cancer and they're on chemotherapy, so their immune system doesn't work. People with transplants. I have a friend with a kidney transplant. 
got immunized, didn't work, no antibodies because the transplant medicines prevent that. The only protection those folks are going to have, and they're 5% of us, is because the rest of us provide this blanket of immunity. So even if you think you don't need it, think about this as a donation of your own goodwill to those who are more vulnerable. That's the best hope they have. And that's not going to get there if it's 55% of your community that's got immunized, which is true, I'm sorry to say, in still quite a number of states. Doc, you said uh, earlier that we've had nine months of experience with the vaccine. Uh, True, there's a learning curve there. But we've had like 20 years of experience with viruses coming here from China, uh, with SARS and MERS. And we talked a little bit about this last night. Do you think lessons have been learned this time that should have been learned already that will give us some kind of operating intelligence and infrastructure and plan for the next time? Because there will be a next time. There will be, Chris. And, you know, we learned lessons each time, but sometimes we forget or we slip into complacency. This has been the worst pandemic in 103 years. I hope and pray that means we're really going to remember and not do the complacency thing. And there are things already in play uh, that we can point to to say we're going to be ready in a better way. For instance, now that we know these mRNA vaccines can work, let's look at the 20 most likely next pandemic viruses and go ahead and start the process of designing those vaccines. Get them several steps along so that if we need them, it's not like, okay, I got to design it today. I could take it out of the freezer and start those clinical trials almost immediately. Let's be sure we're also designing drugs that work against these viruses, which we haven't had a great set of to treat people who are sick and do that in advance. And that work is also starting to get underway. So, yeah, I do think we're going to learn those lessons. I, again, hope that five years from now, people don't go like, well, you know, we haven't seen another one of these for a while. We can probably cut back on the support for pandemic preparedness. We'll probably be fine. We won't be. This is going to keep happening. Dr. Francis Collins, thank you. Uh, for a repeat performance here and for sharing this information and perspective with the audience. It's appreciated. Glad to be with you, Chris. Uh, Anytime. Thanks for what you're doing to get the word out there. Thank you, sir. All right, to another fight. Cybersecurity is without question the most confounding national security issue we deal with. If one person came into this country and attacked one company, one factory, one place, we'd be all talking about it for days. Who were they? How'd they do it? These cyber terrorists are doing horrible things all the time with ransomware on critical businesses like our beef plants, like gas pipelines, like hospitals. And they're getting paid off and we never hear about it. And we don't even know that the government has a way to stop it. So it's time we take it seriously. The co-founder of CrowdStrike, a hacking prevention expert, is going to give you the real deal about the scope of the problem and what can be done but isn't being done to stop it. Next. It's not your imagination. Hackers are busier. It's not just that we're paying attention to it. It's on the rise, and we need to pay attention to it. And they are targeting key public needs. Hospitals, transportation, gas pipelines, and now food. They're picking those targets for the same reason that Willie Sutton said he robbed banks. That's where the money is. They've gotten $4.4 million off of this ransomware. Now, here's the key. You know how they're getting paid? Cryptocurrency. Why? I'll tell you in a second. But remember last month's gas pipeline attack? 
That's what they got paid in. It's easier than selling the data that they used to steal from places like banks and insurance companies. Why? Because that had to be done in cash or some kind of currency. And what can you do with currency? You can track it. How about cryptocurrency? Not so much. Now you see why it, why it is proliferating as cryptocurrency is as well. So how real and how do you stop it? For that, let's bring in Dmitry Elperovich. He's a leading cyber expert, runs the Silverado Policy Accelerator, and was a founder of cybersecurity company CrowdStrike. Dmitry, good to see you. Thanks for having me, Chris. So first, am I exaggerating any of this? How real is the threat in terms of growing scope scale? You're not. And I hate to use the word that it's an epidemic uh, in the midst of an actual pandemic, but it really is coming to that. When they're going after our food security, our food supply, when they're going after our gas, when they're going after our hospitals, we had a huge outbreak in hospitals last year in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, critical surgeries have been postponed. They've even gone after uh, breweries and, and distilleries, if you can believe that, Chris. Truly nothing is sacred anymore. But the, the reality is that every type of business is under attack. Schools, police departments, the D.C. police department was hit um, a few months ago and uh, had, to, um, ha- had its uh, confidential files disclosed by these criminals. No one is immune. Uh, the cynical say, eh, everybody does it. The United States does it to other people. They do it to us. It's, it's, uh, there's a give and take. Is that true? No. I said this about half a decade ago, Chris, that we don't have a cyber problem. We have a Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea problem. And what I mean by that is that the vast majority of the attacks are coming either from the nation states themselves, the militaries and intelligence services of these countries, or the criminals that operate within their borders. Um, some of those criminals have, may have no affiliation with the government as many of those ransomware crews do not have an affiliation with the Russian government, but the Russian government is aware that they're operating, they know where they are, and they choose not to arrest them and not to prosecute them. So in a way, they're providing safe harbor to them, just like the Taliban was providing safe harbor to Al-Qaeda before 9-11. You say cryptocurrency changed the game, and that is key to stopping the game. How so? The sophistication of these attacks has actually not changed a whole lot, Chris. The ability to go in and encrypt data and demand a ransom has existed for decades. But we have not seen those attacks decades ago because to do them successfully before, you have to leave a ransom note that would say, please wire the money to this bank account. And of course, that would be easily traceable. You would be identified. Law enforcement would be on your tail. Nowadays, you can say, please transfer money to my Bitcoin wallet. And no one knows who owns that Bitcoin wallet. And as a result, it is it has really generated this explosion in ransomware and extortion schemes because now they can receive the payments in an effectively untraceable manner. You say the fix is for the administration to crack down on cryptocurrency. How? Do you believe that they could make it illegal? No, I don't think we should ban it. But what we should do is apply the exact same standards that we have in the rest of the financial system. When you're trying to do a large wire transfer, to someone else in the, in, the, in the traditional banking system, when it's over $10,000, the, the bank will perform something called KYC, know your customer checks on who you are, the source of funds, and who it's going to. We need the financial institutions in the crypto space to do those same checks on their customers, crypto exchangers and others that are playing a role in the transfer and conversion of the funds, the cryptocurrency funds, into what's called fiat currency dollars 
euros, rubles, whatever it may be, so that we can finally start tracing those payments and exposing the bad guys. Well, one thing is for sure. This does not have the energy in Washington, D.C. that says, let's say, going after uh, the big social media providers uh, does. So we're going to go to some of those same lawmakers and say, what about this? And see if there could be some energy in terms of giving it attention to come up with a plan. Dimitri, thank you very much. We'll have you back and track the progress on this. Thank you. All right. One of America's newest high school grads is already making her mark in the world. The valedictory that went viral. Why? Because it was a surprise and she took a chance that very, very few in her position would take. You're about to meet her and hear why her first step into her adult life was a very daring one. Next. What a huge deal to be your high school valedictorian. And there's one in Dallas making waves after scrapping her pre-approved graduation speech to instead take aim at Texas's newest abortion law. It's the so-called heartbeat law that would effectively ban most abortions after six weeks of pregnancy when a fetal heartbeat is usually detected. And it makes no exceptions for pregnancies that are a result of incest or rape. Paxton Smith is a name that you're going to want to remember. And here's why. Today, I was going to talk about TV and media and content because it's something that's very important to me. However, under light of recent events, it feels wrong to talk about anything but what is currently affecting me and millions of other women in the state. Six weeks. That's all women get. And so before they realize, most of them don't realize that they're pregnant by six weeks. So before they have a chance to decide if they are emotionally physically and financially stable enough to carry out a full-term pregnancy before they have the chance to decide if they can take on the responsibility of bringing another human being into the world. That decision is made for them by a stranger. It's a problem that cannot wait. And I cannot give up this platform to promote complacency and peace when there is a war on my body and a war on my rights a war on the rights of your mothers, a war on the rights of your sisters, a war on the rights of your daughters. We cannot stay silent. Paxton joins us now. Paxton, congratulations, first of all, on being a valedictorian from your high school. That is awesome. Thank you. So 10 days out, what changes in you? What went on inside your head and your heart that made you decide talking about the media is important, but not as important as this to me. Okay, I had recently heard about the passing of the heartbeat bill and I was trying to work on an assignment for school, but I couldn't bring myself to focus on that assignment because I was so distracted by how upset I was with the heartbeat bill. And it just kept playing on repeat in my head how upset I was. And at that point, I realized that this is something that I need to talk about. Now, many people in your community, especially the religious people, um, would say, no, you should be upset because any time a baby is killed, uh, it's wrong. And six weeks is six weeks too long. Why don't you adhere to that belief? I think sometimes... 
it's a matter of opinion about when you think a fetus can be considered a baby and when you can consider a fetus to be alive. To me, a fetus is not really alive until it's viable. And so I don't agree with that rhetoric. So now you decide to change your speech. Brave. But more brave than you probably even know. You go to your parents and say, here's what I'm going to talk about. They had to be concerned. You're valedictorian. You've, you've accomplished so much. They have to be so proud. And now you're risking it all at the moment of your greatest celebration. Uh, what did you say to them to calm their concern of what this would mean to you, especially in your community? I told them essentially that this was incredibly important to me and that I felt like it was the right thing to do and that there was no better time to make a speech like that. And I had thought of a lot of the risks that were involved and that was something that I was willing to take on. Did you think that when you were walking off the stage uh, to some applause that somebody would take you aside and say the school's thinking of revoking your diploma? I did not anticipate that. Out of all of the outcomes I expected, I think that was the last one. But I that thought. happened, right? Yes. And what did you think to yourself when you were told that? And it didn't happen, right? You, you got your baccalaureate, you're through, right? I ended up getting my diploma, yes. And what did you think was, when someone said that? I was really surprised, actually. I, I didn't know really what to think in that moment, but I didn't feel regret about what I said. Even if it had cost you something? Yes. So now you're going to UT Austin. You got big dreams. What did this mean to you? How do you feel now about it going around the country? There's a lot of controversy. People, you know, this issue is very divisive on the basis of belief not science. You say it's a matter of opinion. That's the problem is the law says what viability is. A lot of people, especially where you live, don't accept it. But what did this experience mean to you? It's very exciting. I'm very glad that the speech has gotten so much publicity because it opens up the opportunity for conversation about this more. I'm hoping that this leads to more people uh, feeling passionate about it and feeling the need to become educated about the issue and form an opinion about it and vote for it in their state elections. So you are valedictorian. That is a huge achievement. I got a little tip Thank for you. you. You want a tip from an old guy? A lot of, of people go their entire lives without ever taking a risk in the direction of what they believe to be true because the risk seems like it's too much. And you're just 18 and on your way to college and you already done that, and you did it on the biggest stage that you were ever offered. That takes guts, it takes smarts, and it takes soul, no matter what people think about the position. So good for you, Paxton, and I wish you good things going forward. Thank you so much. Paxton Smith, a name you will want to remember. All right, now another American newsmaker, one of the country's newest millionaires. All he had to do was get vaccinated. Now he's rich in dollars and antibodies. Ready to meet him? Next. If you're reluctant to get vaccinated and had the chance at willing a million bucks if you did it, would you? 
One Ohio man jumped at the chance and is now a million dollars richer. Amazon delivery driver Jonathan Carlisle is the second Ohioan to win the state's vaccination grand prize. But get this, he missed the governor's call informing him that he'd won. He had to check the voicemail because he was busy working. He joins us now to tell us what that moment felt like and what he plans to do with the money. Congratulations, brother. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Now, is it true what I was told by my team that when you saw the number on the phone, you thought you had won? Why? I uh, first off, I was very surprised. Uh, it said Mike DeWine. Uh, he has his uh, his, <laughs> his personal health number has caller ID. It, it goes out. And uh, I saw it. And I, I mean, for a slight second, maybe a scam. But as soon as I heard the voicemail, I, I knew exactly what it was. All right. Well, yeah, of course you did. It had his name on it. They didn't tell me that. Now, now I'm not so surprised. All right. So <laughs> this is huge, brother. Um, you were worried about getting the vaccine for the same reason so many were. Not because you're anti-science, uh, but you were worried about getting the time to do it. You got a young kid at home. You're working two jobs. You're worried if that they wouldn't give you time off if you got sick. So you had been delaying. And then the lottery pushed you over? Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, my girlfriend had already gotten her first dose. And I was, just, oh. I was putting it off. I, I kept putting it off. Even after my sister pushed me some more. And then finally, I, the, the, the Vaximillion thing started. And I was like, I, I got to do it now. I, I, I just something told me to go, go do it and sign up for the, for the million dollars. Well, good for you, uh, brother. And this is life-changing money. There's nobody who doesn't uh, need a million dollars, but it will change things for you. How? Um, I think the biggest thing is um, uh, just clearing away all of my debt and actually being able to uh, I have breathing room, you know, a little bit of breathing room. Uh, uh, being able to put more money back and save instead of just bouncing from bill to bill sometimes. <laughs> I heard that uh, you drive in a car that's got a muffler that sounds like an angry cat and uh, you've been trying to get a house but couldn't put the down payment together. What does this mean for you now? Uh, just what you said. Uh, the, the, uh, the first thing I think I'm going to do is uh, I, I'm going to get myself a new car. And then beyond that, we, we, we just want to set a foundation for my family, uh, a house, maybe a, a good chunk, a down payment for a house and, and go from there. Uh, I'm going to ask for some help because like, uh, this is life changing money and I've never dealt with it before. So <laughs> be smart, move slow, think twice. What did the girlfriend and the boys think about it? Uh, uh, my girlfriend uh, told her boss she had to leave work and came directly home and uh, she was crying when she opened the door. It was awesome. <laughs> well, listen, it is nice to see somebody rewarded for doing the right thing. God bless you and the family. Good luck with using the money. And I hope life takes you in the great direction you want it to. Be well, brother. Thank you. Thank you. You have a good night. All right. You too. We'll be right back. That's it for us tonight. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now with its big star, D. Lemon. You're trying to get me in shape, right? Running. Chris is early. I'm like, what? Chris is never early. He's <laughs> always, even in, in real life. We all, tell them what I do to you. Lunch is actually at 1.30. What do I tell you? You do sometimes hide the time, but I don't get that. It's my wife uh, that has Blame a little bit of Christina. a delay factor. <laughs> I am prompt, brother. I am prompt. If lunch is at 1.30, you tell Chris 12.30 so, or 1. 
You're the one who's on. I'm yeah. going to get in trouble for this. You're the one who's on. You know what time. So, yeah, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> um, but the, listen, you know, I was listening to Joe Manchin tonight. Oh, yeah. And he is not wrong about the ideal. But the question is, does what he believes the Senate is about still exist in reality? I mean, he's certainly I don't know what he's hearing from Republican senators. He's got Murkowski who signed on to the Joe Lewis, uh, the the John Lewis Act. But you're not getting people to work together like it used to. He has to know that. But he's not wrong to want it. Uh, Okay, so I'm going to have to disagree with you. I think he you're right about whether that's Senate or even the Congress, whether that um, exists anymore. It does not. Um, I think he's wrong. I think bipartisanship for the sake of bipartisanship is empty. Uh, when you Explain look at, that. Because, because he, wants, he wants bipartisanship just because. You have to look at what is on the line, which is the way I'm going to start my show, by the way. So I'm just going to say it now. This is some serious shit, stuff. This is serious. Voting rights, you don't get any more serious than that. So you got voting rights and you got bipartisanship. Voting rights. Bipartisanship has always been an issue. Everyone has always said, we can be more bipartisan. We can do this. We can do The filibuster was not started contrary. Again, I'm giving away my open. Contrary to what Kirsten Sinema says, it was not created for comedy. It was created by mistake. It has not been a, the font of comedy and bipartisanship in the Senate. That is a complete misre- misrepresentation and a complete misunderstanding of the history of the filibuster in, in the Senate. And the filibuster has been used to vote down civil rights legislation, anti-lynching legislation, and so on. More than once, more than twice, more than three times. That is a history of the filibuster. So they are both wrong about the filibuster and wrong for saying, well, this is the way. Yeah, it's the way it should be, but it's not the way it is. All right. It should be that I could eat, like I did tonight, 3,000 calories and not gain weight. But that's not the reality. My, uh, my take on it is this. Um, your, your high ground is on what is at stake and what the current state of play is. I think that the history of the filibuster is easily recognizable for people. It had different periods before and after it was used uh, to motivate racist resolve. And you're absolutely right about that period. Um, When you hold up your right hand and say voting rights, it's not just voting rights. Mm -hmm. It's voting rights and the rights of Republican states to overturn elections that they don't like. So it's not just curtailing the ability of you know, disproportionately minority people to go and vote. But if you still manage to go out and do it anyway, they have laws in place to be able to overturn. That to me is more dangerous than the curtailment of uh, how long and how often. Both are a problem, but the ability to overturn. So that versus empty bipartisanship, of course, it's going to lose. Don't hide behind the filibuster because you need to appease voters. Just do what is right. And everyone knows what is right. They know what is right. But again, they got to have something to sell to the folks back home. The folks back home who believe that the election was that there's election fraud and that there's this and the Democrats are the worst. And uh, do you think those people are going to vote for Manchin anyway? Um, Sure. If he if he stands up against the mean Democrats, of course. 
That's what it's But I don't think he doesn't limit. present himself like that. I mean, January 6th, he jumped all over McConnell and, pe- and asked him for a personal favor. To People not aren't play always the who they present themselves to be in public. I got to run. Boy, you just can't be anything but right. I can't. I cannot. I can't. No, I can, it's not that I can't be anything but right. Yeah. I can't be. I can't do anything but see the reality to see people for who they are, especially in this moment, especially for someone like me. Voting rights to me. That's huge, man. And the right You're talking to about cancel an election an you election don't like the result of. Because that is a scary power. For someone who sat around and listened to my grandmother, my grandmother and my mother tell me tales of how my mother would take my grandmother to the polls. Or my grandmother would tell me how she would go to the polls. And they would make her, you know, the, the bubbles in the jar. And just, these are all true stories. These are all things that happen. Poll taxes. So if you're going to tell me that's on the line and you're going to say, well, we can't change the rules because we have to be bipartisan. What what does that mean? That means nothing to people like me. So if you want that to be your legacy, then go for it. Go for it. The only thing to worry about is what happens next. But I have to tell you, I agree with you about the exigencies of the moment, but it will have consequences. And I don't think it's over yet in terms of how this plays out. D. Lemon, make your witness. I love you. Love you, too. I'll see you soon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.